This is Michael Easley in Context. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Jimmy Gentry is one of nine children who grew up in a working class family in Williamson County during the Depression. Franklin was a different town in those days, Jimmy. Absolutely. Uh, Franklin was Franklin. What I mean by that, it was just the two blocks that still exist today from the square to, to the 4th Avenue and from 4th Avenue to Five Points. That was Franklin. Probably had about 3,000 people 3, at that people. time. Uh, we were a small town. And mm-hmm. We were one of those typical towns that uh, everybody in town knew everybody else. Mm-hmm. Not only we knew them, we knew who lived in each house in town. <laughs> Jimmy, you grew up as a hunter, a trapper, a fisherman, and you were just mentioning uh, squirrel, fish, and rabbits. Rabbits. We couldn't have survived had it not been for those three items you just named, rabbit, squirrels, and fish, because we didn't have any money, so we couldn't buy anything, but we could catch them. So that's what we did. <laughs> and people have a hard time now understanding that. They say, you mean you ate little old rabbits? Yes, we were hungry. <laughs> Takes a lot of rabbits to feed uh, 10 people. Oh, boy. But we did it. We did that. Uh, and, and, you know, I might add this, that uh, we didn't know we were poor. Right. We didn't know that. You didn't know any different. Because other people didn't have anything either so we thought we were doing pretty good right. and happy every day and had playmates and friends and so we just went right along now at 17 uh you're an athlete in high school you're doing well and uh the war breaks out boy white's drugstore was open on that particular morning the man behind the counter was named david cook as a matter of fact david said be quiet be quiet and he got our attention he turned the radio up and we heard for the first time that's the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. So that was Sunday morning. Sunday, Sunday morning, morning. About 10.30, something like that. Sunday morning when and we heard it. the bombing it. was about 7 something I, in the morning? I don't know what it was, but I know that's when we heard it, right, right after time. Sunday school. Wow. And we put our unfinished Cokes down and walked out of the drugstore without saying a word because we knew what was going to happen. The United States declared war, not only yeah. on Japan, but on Germany as well. Now, now as a teenager, you knew the war was going on. Oh, yeah, and yeah, in Europe. And there's, there's right. talk about uh, conflict in Europe and all that sort of thing. And, and the, also the old uh, movies, uh, we, we didn't call them movies, by the way. We called them picture, picture shows. shows. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would have re- newsreels sometimes, right. and we'd see that. Oh, that's way off somewhere else. It didn't, didn't. And, that, and those newsreels were quite old by the time they were uh, uh, added to a film. Right, they could right. be three, four, five weeks old. Right. Yeah. So that's how we found out what was going on in the world. So uh, you're 17, turning 18. You enlist? I did, but I couldn't get in because the the uh, doctor said, you go home, and when you get to be 18, we'll take you. Okay. And uh, I, I might tell there's a good story involved in what I just said to you that only I would know, I suppose, is we had a man here in Franklin uh, that became America's number two ace during World War II, Cleveland Kennard, Jr., uh, he he shot down 33 and a half German planes himself, but he would come home on leave before I went into service, and he'd have his uniform on, a white scarf around his neck, and boy, he looked great. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to be like him. Okay. And, oh boy, he was a great guy. And so I joined the Air Force, and uh, I thought, boy, this is great. Until a doctor 
began to talk to me there one day, and he said, now, I want you to read these numbers, which was an insult to me. <laughs> I can read numbers, but there were little dots on the page. Right. And when as I read those, <laughs> I thought, this is no problem. And then he looked up at me and said, you're red, green, colorblind. You can't get in the Air Force. Interesting. So he said, you go home, and the Army will take anybody. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's how I got in. <laughs> Don't let the Army hear that, right? Okay. <laughs> So um, you deploy when? Oh, gosh, 44, I guess. 44, 45, I get them mixed up a little bit. Okay. Uh, 44, 44. Right. Uh, and uh, there's a little quick story I can tell you about that. Uh, you're supposed to, at those days you had uh, uh, 16 weeks of basic training. But for some reason, they stopped us after 12 weeks. Uh, and the company commander, I remember the day he did it, he said, get your gear and fall in. We said, what's going on? We're shipping out early. And uh, we didn't know what, what it was. Did find out pretty soon, though. But uh, next thing I know, I'm on a train in New York City, and I've never been out of the state of Tennessee before in my life. Wow. And uh, then, and the reason they were rushing us over there is the Battle of the Bulls. We got there for the Battle of the Bulls. So that's my, my first uh, experience in the war. Twelve was, weeks of basic training. Uh-huh. No real drills, no nope. real group work, and now you're in the now, Battle of the Now I'm on a ship, and the first time I'd ever seen an ocean, I was in the middle of it. And I remember. What was seeing, that like? Oh, gosh, I remember looking at it, it just goes and goes and goes, and I said, golly, it's bigger than the Harpers River. <laughs> and <laughs> a, so little I, bit, a, a little bit, a little bit. Anyway. Were, were you scared? Well, not. Excited? No, I don't think I was scared, but I didn't know exactly what, where to look for help. You just look around and Boy, that thing's big, yeah. and uh, I just hope this ship didn't go down. Amen, amen. <laughs> Where did you base out of? Well, we, we left out of New York. Okay. And uh, the, I'll tell you this a good story about that. What you're asking is that uh, the ship would change directions. Just all of a sudden, it, it zigzagged all the way across the ocean. And I thought, Navy doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> they, we, didn't, we didn't have an escort. That was to keep the German submarine from zero and in on the right. ship. They changed direction suddenly and quick. So we zigzagged. It took us about 10 days to 10 get days. over there to get to England. So about how many troops landed in England with you? Oh, God, it's about eight to 10,000 I was on that ship. And we all, by the way, we were all foot soldiers. No, ar- no armor, or heavy weapons or anything like that. Just foot soldiers. You had a in- rifle? Infantry. Had a rifle. rifle. That's it. And that's it. No 1911 pistol, no, no nothing, no, huh? no, Just no, a rifle. M1 rifle. M1 yeah. rifle, a helmet. <laughs> that's it. Uh, cartridge belt, and we were, we were in, we were in, uh, landed in Southampton. And they got off, it. they took us off at night. When it, when it happened, the public address system comes on, and he tells you to get up and get your gear, and we do. Now it's about 2 o'clock in the morning, and then he's getting in line, and we do. Then he says, uh, take the man's belt in front of you with your left hand. And I recently got somebody's belt with my left hand. Someone took my belt, and then they turned the lights off. Didn't realize it then, but uh, that would be the last time we'd see lights at night for six months. Six months. Yeah, no more lights. Can't even strike a match. And uh, in the total darkness, we go up out of that ship. Um, Finally, you could tell when you got on top deck because the air was fresh. And then we started down the gangplank. We hit feel it sway. We knew where we were. And then I, there was a guy standing there saying, step up, step up <laughs> on the train. And then another one standing, sit, flat like a dog. He said, sit, sit. <laughs> and so 
that, so the train began to move. We knew it was on a train. Hear the click of the tracks, and uh, then the finally the little beads of light came in through the black shades, and we were down in England, and finally stopped and got off. Good. <laughs> that, so you're 18. Yeah, 18. Walked down the middle of the street, cold as it could be, and uh, got on the LST. That's the one that lets the front down and crossed the English mm-hmm. Channel. And when it let the front down, that's France. What what so what year was that when you're landing in France? You remember the date? Forty? No, I don't remember okay. the date. I don't remember. Approximate? That. Uh, December. Okay. Uh, November, December, okay. Uh, December. I think forty-four. A lot of men died. Oh boy, did they? Yeah, yeah. Now when we landed, though, the the front had already moved in. Okay. It had moved in when we after we landed, it moved in, but it was beginning to snow, and that's that's where the, we had our problems with the cold weather. The cold weather. Um. Fast forward a little bit. Uh, Allied troops entered Dachau. Oh boy, did you? You jumped over the whole war, really, because uh, I put it this way: the simple life that I had lived back here in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, I never, I didn't know what the word concentration camp meant. I never heard the word, uh, and we had seen the horrors of war. Uh, I could get emotional. I don't. I, I can handle it though. Uh, I've been close with the hands length of my buddy that gets killed. You think, gosh, war's horrible. You can't, you couldn't see anything any worse than this. And then April 29th, 1945, we feel like the war's about over. And I put it this way. Uh, I've coached football for 66 years, so but I put it this way. It's the fourth quarter. We're ahead by four touchdowns, two minutes on the clock. We've got the ball. It's all over. This war, we've won. It's just a matter of clock running out on them. Then on April 29th, 1945, I remember got a high rise like, and then the top looking down ahead, and there's a wall. And we knew it was some sort of camp, but we thought it was just an army camp of some sort. We didn't know what it was. And uh, some of the guys threw up from the smell that came from that camp. Not seeing anything, but the smell, the human body smells different than a horse or cow, chicken or something. And so we go down, and there was a there was a uh, box a group of box cars on the outside of the wall. Obviously, there was some inside we couldn't see inside. So we go down and go around the end box car to get on the opposite side to go in the gate. And there, for the first time, we see the dead bodies where the smells coming from thousand dead human bodies arms no bigger than a broomstick legs just see have a bone in their body they had starved to death or they shot them but were still living and that's where the smell was coming from we didn't know who they were and uh, so i asked my buddy from new york charlie Thiessen, i said charlie who are these people and he said they're jews and when he said that, I thought back home to Mr. Tarner here. We only had three Jewish families in, that I can remember in Franklin then. He bought my furs and things like that. I liked Mr. Tarner. He was Jewish. Oh. And when he said that, I thought, God, why? I don't understand this. Had no idea. Innocent little boy growing up here, then seeing that for the first time. And which that, we, which we, you we, had to describe a lot of young men in the Army. Oh, yeah. From little hamlets and little towns all over the country who volunteered for war, they loved they loved their country, they loved God, they they loved America, they they were called to serve. Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, which I think is a remarkable recounting, um, 
in in your generation, the greatest generation, we said, we'll go. Yeah, that's it. There wasn't a question. There wasn't no. a protest. There wasn't a Vietnam protest. No, there wasn't no. a, this isn't our war. Mm-hmm. We were called to serve the country, and we went. That's right. You're exactly right. My brother went in before I did, and he was killed by the time I went in. He was killed in Italy oh, my word. Uh, before. So my mother, I, I often think of this, how hard it was on mothers, using my mother as an example. When they go into service back then, they'd put uh, a blue star in the window. And my mother had a blue star for my brother. And then I have to go in, and she puts another blue star. But by then, he's killed. She puts replaces it with a gold star. One lady, I think, was in Iowa, had five gold stars oh. when the war ended. So how, 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 old, it was, how old was your older brother? Uh, he was just 18 months older than 18, me. So not even two uh-huh. years older. Uh-huh. Just uh, 18 months older than me. And you'd already received word that yeah, he'd been killed word before been you killed. deployed. Mm-hmm. Then, then she had to give up one son and send another one off. Now, they changed that later on, but the war yeah. was over when they changed it. If you had a brother killed, he didn't have to serve. They pulled, you, they pulled you out. Mm-hmm. Save you private run. They mm-hmm. pull him out. Right. But anyway, that's what they did. And then they. this, I might add this, is uh, when you go into service, uh, they issue you two dog tags. This is emotional. Two dog tags. My dog tag says James C. Gentry 4404670, the letter P for Protestant, letter O for my blood type, T-44 Infantry. And it has a notch in it. That notch is there for purpose. When your buddy goes down, you take one dog tag. Don't take it off the chain. Put that notch between the two insides of the teeth and tap it in. It stays with the body. Then you go on and leave him. The medics come up behind you and find the body. Then they take the second dog tag off. That goes to the war department to send a telegram home to the nearest of kin, notify them they've been lost. I remember the first telegram I saw come up our street in Franklin, Tennessee. It was an old man on a bicycle. He got a telegram. Everybody knew, everybody in town, that's somebody we know has been killed. Who is this? Somebody with, a blue, somebody with a blue star. We had a blue star. He didn't stop at our house. He went just a little bit past us, turned right on South Margin Street. Miss Josephine Wirt lived on the corner. See, the Grimes, Oscar Grimes lived next door right on down and stopped at the Terry house. Then we knew that Mac had been killed. That's the way it was. Then Mrs. Terry put a gold star in his place. Then she puts up another blue star for me and then she has to put a gold star up. That's the horrors of war. And uh, it's hard to, for people to understand that. You have to live through that. And I, I don't think we understand it. Let's go back to Dachau. So you see innumerable bodies decaying. The smell is atrocious. Take us through it. What happens next? Well, let, let me add something that, I, yes. that helps me to explain how it was. I remember one day I had been hunting for, by myself, about 14 years old, 15, something like that. And I came up, and it was a dog had attempted to jump the fence. You might not understand why I'm telling you this until I'm finished with it. Uh, and when a dog jumps the fence, he puts his back feet on the top wire, give him a little boost off the opposite side. But sometimes the loose wire that twisted, it had twisted and trapped this dog's foot, and he was hanging upside down. He was nothing but skin and bones. See, I have a rib in his body, 
and I thought he was dead. You can see where he clawed the ground. There's a good story here. You see the ground where he clawed it, trying to free himself, but couldn't. And I love dogs anyway, and I thought, gosh, that poor dog has died right there trying to get out of that fence. And then I looked back a second time, and I saw him breathe. Mm -hmm. He's not dead. Mm -hmm. So I go over and release the wire, and he falls in a soft heap on the ground. I thought, well, he can't get up, but he does. He falls down two or three times. Finally, he gets enough strength to stand. He staggers around. He goes about five or six feet away from me on the opposite side of the fence, and the dog stopped and turned around. A dog can't talk, but I know what his eyes were saying. Thank you. When we went to that camp, April 29, 1945, I saw the same thing. Eyes staring out at us before they realized who we were. And I said, the eyes just like that dog's eyes. They just staring at you. And then they realized who we were. And they started screaming and yelling and cut the gates open. And they started out and they hugged and kissing. A leg just anywhere. Someone hollered out, don't let them kiss you on the mouth. I didn't understand it then. But I did the next day because they took us out to a field, took all of our uniform, underwear and all, and burned, burned them. Then they shaved all the hair off of our bodies, and we walked between two trucks, and they sprayed us from both sides with DDT because some of those that had typhus fever creatures care about a flea off of a rat. Gave us fresh clothes. And I was so glad to leave Dachau. We left that next day. The next day. And get away from all of that. So that's my experience there. The eyes are just like that dog. They're just staring at you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And they remind me of the dog. They were skin and bones. And yet those are souls mm -hmm. in the image of God, mm -hmm. men and women. Mm -hmm. About how many were uh, released, do you recall, from Dachau? I've read about it. I think it's about 32,000. Now, that, I did, that figure, for some reason, sticks in my mind. I, I could be wrong, mm -hmm. but uh, we didn't count them. Right, right. <laughs> Your job was different. Uh, we, we were foot soldiers. We were foot soldiers. Jimmy's written a book called An American Life about the time, really, where small-town America has no more. <laughs> no more. Absolutely. It's a different world. Um, you mentioned coaching 66 years. You were married to Rebecca for how many years? Oh, for those 61 years. 61 years. Mm -hmm. Sorry for your loss. Yeah. Well, she, uh, the farm I live on came through her family, mm -hmm. not mine. And so I've just been blessed not only with the farm, but our marriage was just unbelievably good. It was wonderful. You have how many, ch how many children? We have three sons. How many grandchildren? And uh, now, <laughs> let's see, how many have I got? <laughs> Seven grandchildren, and I got two Great grandchildren. Fun. Oh, boy. They're the best. <laughs> <laughs> they just. Now, you said you coached 66 years. Mm -hmm. Where'd you coach? The first 15s at Franklin High School, the second 15s at BGA, Battleground Academy, and then the next 36 years at Brentwood Academy. Talk to us about your life with Christ. How do you, how do you meet him? Well,. <laughs> I was brought up, as I said, in Fourth Avenue Church of Christ, and uh, and I was a Sunday school boy, and I went through all of that. But uh, it's and I like it could get emotional again here. I remember the first 
time I really realized what Christ was. We were in in France. We are going to go into combat, and uh, we were gathered in a little room. There was one, two, three, about seven of us, and uh, gathered around a little stove, and finally a runner from command post CP comes up and says, the captain said, uh, fall out and draw extra ammunition. Now, we'd been talking up to that point, but when he said that, I can add, I relate that to football. It's almost kickoff time. You go down, get extra ammunition, then you come back up. Now, there's not much talk now. You begin to think. And we had one guy with Michael Sismary from Chicago, and I never, he's a real first real live Yankee I'd ever seen up close. <laughs> and he could just talk, talk, and he said bad words. My mama would get him, boy. And she'd wipe his <laughs> mouth out. But I thought, well, boy, they're tough. We'll just go watch Michael. He whipped them all by himself. But when we came up this time, Michael didn't talk much. Mm. It's getting close. And then finally, when the runner comes up and said, Captain said, fall out. This is it. And we go down the steps. I'm going to answer your question. Down the steps, and it's, it's beginning to snow. We get, they put us in the back of a pickup, not a, a, a two-and-a-half-ton truck. And we're packed in there and pull the tarpaulin down. There's no light. You can't strike a match. It's so quiet in the back of that truck, you hear everybody breathing. And then it began to creep forward in the dark. It's not going to take us far, but we can hear the noise in the distance where we were going. Then I realized then Michael was quiet. Everybody was quiet. There wasn't one place for me to go. I went to God. I prayed. Please take care of me. Please take care of me. I remember it over and over and over. That's when I think I really backed up to the wall. I didn't have where to go. And God took care of me. Michael didn't, he was dead in three days. Mm-hmm. So I'm answering your question, my sister. was in the back of that truck. Mm-hmm. Put under that situation like that. I'd live the life here, a simple life. I'd go to Sunday school. I'd go to church. I did everything the right way, I thought. And uh, But that right there, I said, you ain't got one place to go. That was it. You know, it, in, in a way, Jimmy, doesn't it seem until all the props are taken away, very few people ever lean on God? You're exactly right. And, of course, now I'll be, uh, next month I'll be 90 years old. And as, as you grow older, you look back and you say, gosh, I wish I could tell <laughs> where I learned to do that, how to do that, and when I didn't know about this, I didn't know about that. And uh, you look back on those situations. and so. But we wouldn't have heard it. Uh-uh. You know, I, there's a line in um, a, a novel by uh, Jack London. It's, a, it's a, a short story called A Piece of Meat or A Piece of Steak, I forget. Yeah. But it's about two fighters. And they're in a boxing ring, and there's an old seasoned fighter fighting a very young fighter. And the old fighter is fighting for enough money to pay the rent and put some food on the table. And the young fighter's got all the entourage around him and all the strength. And London paints a vivid picture of the old man looking for one punch. Yeah, just one. Just one punch. And he, he's moving around the ring before the bell rings. He's one step from sitting down in his chair because he doesn't want to waste one ounce of energy walking back to the corner to the ring. And there's a scene in there where he articulates 
He sees this young man with all this strength. I think he describes it as horse flesh wrapped with a sheet. And he sheds one tear and he says, if I could give him the wisdom of all the boxing I've learned, he wouldn't waste his energy with these useless swings. But the only way he can get that wisdom is to expend his strength and become an old man. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And it's a beautiful picture of not living with regret. And and yet, um, you and I are concerned about our country. We're concerned about our generation, concerned about our family and our kids. What do you what do you tell a person today that's never going to see Doc Al? ISIS and and Al Qaeda are it's on the news, but it's far away. What, what do you tell them about not just the world, but about how important that young Jimmy in a truck scared to death calling out to God? Well, I don't know how I can answer that. Just like I want to or not, but uh, you can have everything. Uh, you can have wealth, you can have material, you can have all of that. But if it comes right down to it, that doesn't make any difference. There's a relationship between you and your master. And and you've got to find it sometimes. Some people find it some other ways, but I found mine in the back of that truck because I was forced against the wall. And sometimes it takes that to do that. Uh, maybe there are other ways, but that's what. I, so I don't know how to answer your question. I just know that I I got the feeling that uh, that uh, God's looking over us, taking care of us, uh, and uh, you got to find Him though. He's not going. He's going to grab you and say, "Hey, wake up, wake you're, up." You're still you're still speaking to young audiences. You speak yeah. to boys and girls and young people and and yeah. young adults. And uh, you know where they are. You've lived yeah. life. You know this yeah. thing. Um, what do you wish you could tell them? Well, I, I, as I said, when I when I speak to them, the youngsters, I try to do what I said to you a minute ago. I try to get them back in the beginning of time, which was me, my life, growing up, thinking that you've got the world in your hand and everything. But you, there's a time that you don't have anything that's worthwhile until you do find Christ. Then you know where you are. I put it this way. I quote said sometimes people quote me doing this mine, know where you belong, work hard. Then when something needs to be done, God'll know where to find you. <laughs> because people keep bouncing around, changing jobs. They don't know where they belong. And once you find that, work hard then God will know where to find you. And I try to tell him that. Uh, I have a man in mind right now that just moved here, moved here, moved there, did this, did this. Then finally he found where he belonged, and he became great mm. at what he finally found, what he wanted to do. Yeah, and part of our, and I, and I work with some 30s and 20-somethings, and they're, they're very passionate people. Mm -hmm. They're courageous people. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a discontentment with sort of working for the, the boss or working for a company or working for an organization. I don't think it's always monetarily driven, but there's this no, no. restlessness. They can't quite land. No, you, you, you can't find it that way. You, you it's, it's, it's got to happen to you. Uh, you can't read books. You can't study it. It's, you got to find it yourself. And sometimes God does it different ways. I think. Do, and, do you think, and, and I don't mean, I mean this respectfully, 
as I've stated, the greatest generation. I really believe you are. Um, do you think we've lost something with so much given to us right. that we have this expectation that's unrealistic? Well, if I can answer that, I think again, I tell you who I am or anybody, not just me, anybody my age, a little older, a little younger, maybe about around my age, we're the result of two things, Great Depression and World War II. Put those two together. That's where my values come from. I'm bad about keeping things. I don't throw it away. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, See, I buried my father five years ago. We took a ton of stuff to the dump. <laughs> it wasn't worth anything, but they don't want to. That's the Great Depression. Now, did you take the, the nails out of the crates and straighten them and put them in <laughs> yep, a mayonnaise yep, jar? Yep, you yep, nail the yep, top to the exactly. bar, your workbench. You hit, it on, you, yeah. you hit the nail on the head. No pun intended. Every piece <laughs> Save, of string, every rubber right. band, every slat. I mean, he kept everything. <laughs> every Newspapers and everything. Busted out old out from the wall we might use that again one day that's right that's 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 the great depression and then world war ii added the rest of it to to my generation our values uh it's hard to uh, explain that other than seeing what happened during the war you had to live it i can tell you you can read it but uh if you live through it then gosh and I, I feel like that those that went through the Great Depression and World War II, and by the way, I'm the last one in my squad left, and I think I'm the last one in my platoon left. Oh, my word. Wow. Think about that. Wow. Now, in other words, our examples are all leaving. Well, that and that, that's scary to me personally because mm -hmm. we, 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 we can't fall back and tell this because there's not only none of them left. It'll be gone. Mm -hmm. Where's your hope? Well, I hope that our country – believes in God we trust and not just because we have wealth. Some of the best people I've ever known didn't have anything. Think about that. Mm -hmm. I've known some rich people, still do. I know some rich, and I, I think the world of them, but uh, Aunt Hattie, she was a black lady. I loved Aunt Hattie. And she just talked so much to our family when she work for my mother. She didn't have anything. Mm. So I think, I don't know what I'm saying and making it clear or not, but uh, the way that we live, whether we know it or not, it shines. Mm -hmm. People know pretty much what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we have to put, keep God in, in, in front of us all the time. Live the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, and I, I, as I said, I, I can't go any more than that. I, 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 every time I think about it, I go back, live like Christ, live like Christ. And I can remember doing this myself. Uh, I used to tell myself, I, this first time I've ever told this, or maybe it's not a good time to tell it, <laughs> but it is too in a way. I want to be as much like Christ as I can. And I think, I don't know whether I'll be able to do it or not, but I'm trying. I'm trying to do it. I want to be like Christ. I want to be as much like him as I can. I don't think anybody ever will, but I want to try. He's my he's my model. I want to add something to you. You, you. you won't ask this, so I'll put it in for you. About 10 years ago, I guess it was, I got a phone call 40 years later, and she said, are you James C. Gentry? I said, yes, ma'am. I knew she didn't know me. Had she known me, she would have said, Jimmy, mm -hmm. were you in the Army during World War II? Yes, ma'am. 
<laughs> and uh, said, well, you're in the 232nd Infantry Regiment, 2nd Battalion. I said, oh, oh she's reading. <laughs> she's got something. Okay. I was. I said, yes. She said, well, you're in E Company. She nailed it down. I was in E Company. I said, yes, ma'am. Then she said, then you were at Dachau. That's the first time. Anyone had brought anyone it up. brought it up to me. Would you come to Nashville and talk about it? I said, no. She thanked me and all that. About two weeks later after that, I get another phone call. This is the one. It's a man's voice, and when he began talking, I knew he was from somewhere in Eastern Europe. And he, he began by saying, I understand you don't want to talk about your war experiences. And I said, that's, that's right. He said, well, I just want to come out and shake your hand. Well, you can't turn a fellow down for wanting to shake your hand. So I said, well, <laughs> I'll be out on the football field at 2 o'clock, whatever. I don't have any idea who it is. I, I should have been suspicious with that voice. <laughs> and I was out on the field, and I saw a car pull up in the distance. Somebody had driven an old man out, and he gets out of the car, and he starts walking across the field. He didn't go to the left or right. He comes straight, right through the players. And when he gets about close to that doorknob to me right there, I broke down and cried. Mm. I recognized him. Mm-hmm. He was one of them. He came over, and we cried together because I knew what he knew, and he knew what I knew. And then he's the one that said, you've got to tell your story. If you don't, it's going to die. And so that's why I started talking, but now I hadn't, got, I hadn't reached the point now. I was talking to a movie producer once, and I told that same thing. And he said, why did you cry? He's the only one ever asked me that. And I said, well, back when I was growing up, the thing to do was smoke cigarettes. Now, I've never had a cigarette in my mouth in my life. My brother smoked. My daddy smoked. All my friends smoked. I was weird. I never had a cigarette. <laughs> Army gave me cigarettes. Sure. Carton, I staff sergeant gave me a carton a week. I'd give them away. Never smoked. Go with me now, back to the combat. We take a German prisoner. First thing we say to him is, hands are hoffing. Put your hands on your head. I cannot think of a single time that they didn't say back to us, hoffing's a cigarette and do you have any cigarettes? Then we go to the fence that day, the barbed wire fence, and all those people peering out through the barbed wire. And I describe it as a sea of faces that appear to be dead, but yet they were alive. Quote, that man comes to the fence, and of all the people in the United States Army to ask for a cigarette, guess who he asked? I can speak German. Hobbin's a cigarette, and I said, it's Nick Hobbin. He said, I moment, bitte, just a minute, please. He goes away. And I thought, well, man can't come back. He's nearly dead. He has a little box about this big, and he's cleaned it with his hand. He's had it buried. Whatever it is, is his treasure. All he has on old ragged clothes, he's barefooted. And he comes to the fence and hands it through to me. And when I opened the box, inside was five or six cigarette butts that he had saved. He gave me all he had. The lady in the Bible that gives her two coins, she gave all she had. She gave more than anybody else because that's all she had. That's the man that came on the field that day, and that's why I cry. Goodness. And you knew him when you saw him? So as I saw him, I, I never will forget it. Irving Lemoore. That. That's how important cigarettes were. That's how important growing up and going into war. And what you don't know how you're going to handle certain situations. Uh, sometimes I find myself 
at night when I don't go to sleep right away, I'll say, golly, what would we do then? And I can go back and remember. I've been blessed with memory. I can remember everything. Uh, I've been back to Europe a couple of times, and the first time I went back, I just said, I want to rent a car. And we drove where I walked. <laughs> it's a whole lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's more crowded, though. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't crowded then. <laughs> An American Life by Jimmy Drentry. We've not even scratched the surface. Jimmy, thanks for your service. Thanks for your love of God. Thanks for your love of country. And I pray God's great blessings on your children, your grandchildren, and great-grandchildren to come. Thank you. Thank you so much. Blessings. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com. Follow Michael on Twitter at Dr. Easley. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context.